following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. How does Jesus help the disciples think through who they are, and how does it affect us? Uh, How do we think about who we are and what makes our life important? That's what we want to answer this morning. And uh, Jesus wants them to have an identity and a sense of worth that's based on truth about who they truly are in Christ. Uh, So let's look at this. Uh, It starts off, as I said, the, the, the context and what's going on here is Jesus is just you know, broken the bread. He has just poured out the cup and they've drank together, commemorating uh, Jesus' body, his, his, his life that's about to be uh, crucified on the cross for them. Um, and Jesus knows what's about to happen. And not only does he know what's going to happen, but he knows who is about to betray him. And he says, you know, behold, the man of, of him who betrays me is, is with me on the table. Right here in this group of 12 is, uh, is, a, is a traitor, is one who will betray me and betray his loyalty. Um, and it's significant that Jesus knows this, and he's clear that even though he understands Judas is about to turn him over, that uh, the real cause of his death is not Judas. He says, he says, what must happen to the Son of Man has been determined by God, right? Uh, he knows that the cross is before him, and he knows that the Father is the one who's put the cross there, and that it's God's divine purpose. But he says, woe to him who betrays me. Now, uh, Judas and the betrayal is not really the main point in this passage, but it, it sets up the background or the backdrop of what then follows. Because as Jesus kind of drops this bomb in the midst of them, and says, look, one of you is about to betray me. One of you is about to turn their back on their loyal devotion to me. And as a friend and as a, a companion for the last three years, you're about to, to be a traitor to me. Right? And so this, of course, among the disciples, Jesus doesn't name who it is. And so the twelve begin to talk among themselves who it could be. And, and, uh, and they begin to actually argue uh, with 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 some anxiety um, about who this could be, and uh, uh, as they discuss this, they actually uh, they actually end up having two arguments, right? One about who's the betrayer, and then from there it goes beyond that into who's the greatest. And I love this, right? This is it's kind of funny actually when you look at this, how you go from who's going to be the traitor to who's going to be the greatest of them all, right? All in one conversation as they debate and argue about this. Uh, and we see in this, in this argument, these arguments, uh, some of their wrong ideas about what gives them value, what makes them important. And the first thing we see is that they, uh, they're quite good at underestimating their weakness. Right? And as we think about who we are, one of the things that we've got to realize and understanding is that we, as human beings, have a propensity to underestimate our weaknesses. Right? Nobody likes to really take full inventory of how bad we could be and, and the potential horrible things that we could do or that we have done. Right? And that's what happens here. They, Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me. And all of them start 
discussing and arguing about why it could not possibly be them, right? Uh, and if, if we were at that table, uh, we were sitting there, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, would you honestly say, hmm, I wonder if I could, if I could do that, right? Is it possible that I could so betray Jesus, that I could so turn my back on him? Or would you like the disciples go, well, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could stoop that low. Well, when we look at the, the case of the disciples, the truth is um, they all abandoned Jesus, right? In some levels, they were all guilty of a betrayal, not, not the betrayal of Judas. That was uh, certainly uh, really an unthinkable kind of, of, of disloyalty. But really, all the disciples were guilty of disloyalty. Uh, when, when it came down to it, just a, a very short one or two hours after this discussion, when the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, all the disciples flee. Right, just a little bit later, we'll see this next week. Um, uh, Peter swears, he swears that he will, uh, he will suffer, will die, will go to battle, will die, will go to jail with Jesus. And yet, in a few short hours, what does Peter do? He denies he even knows him. Right? Uh, they all fall asleep in the garden when Jesus begs them to keep watch with him and pray. He says, please. And, and it was clear that Jesus was distressed and in turmoil. And if he needed a friend, if he needed somebody to be with him, this was the moment. And what did they all do? They all show such deep concern and care for Jesus. They all fall asleep. right? Uh, so in many points and in many turns, they fail him. And ultimately, as Jesus dies on the cross, as he hangs there dying, they cannot make sense of it, right? And it's like the ultimate insult. After Jesus has spent three years teaching them and telling them, I have to go to the cross, right? When he's on the cross, they, they still just don't get it, right? They don't get it. And so Jesus not only is dying, but he's proving to be a total failure as a teacher, <laughs> as they don't understand what's going on, and they don't look forward to the resurrection. But they all fail. And the truth is, um, any of them was capable of doing what Judas did. Right? Uh, and, and maybe not because they, they would have gone to the leaders, they, they would have bargained uh, a price for Jesus' life. But the truth is, the disciples, all 12 of them, is, and, and, and us as well, are very capable of turning our back on Jesus. Right? And that's what the betrayal was about. Judas had been a, a friend and a loyal follower who had devoted himself to walk with Jesus. And he uh, was a traitor to that loyalty. Are we capable of that kind of... Uh, treachery and disloyalty to Jesus. Well, if we're honest, we are. But we, we greatly underestimate that, right? And when we think about who I am, we don't usually categorize ourselves as a traitor to the Messiah, <laughs> right? That's not how we want to picture ourselves. Uh, we want to have a much better image of ourselves. And we, uh, uh, you know, we need to be better than that, because, again, this question of who I am is, is deeply connected with my worth. And it's hard to feel like we are 
worth much if we in the end turn out to be such a rotten person, such a traitor. And so we all tend to limit the extent of our weakness and our, our reality of that. Uh, many, many years ago, I had a chance to do some prison ministry, and, and it was always very interesting going into a prison where people had been convicted of crimes, right? And, I, and in all my conversations, which is not a lot, I wasn't, didn't do this a lot, but in my conversations with prisoners, aside from a couple of Christians that I met there, um, none of them said, well, you know, I belong here, <laughs> right? They were all saying, you know, this is great injustice. You've got to help me get out of here because I don't, I don't belong here. I had one guy tell me, you know, I was holding this big, huge knife, but I did not stab the guy. He ran into the knife, <laughs> right? Another guy told me, well, you know, I shot the guy, but I didn't realize the gun was loaded. You know, I pointed the gun at him and I pulled the trigger. I thought it was empty, right? Okay, they're convinced that they're really not that bad. And it's true of all of us. And we see the disciples arguing because none of them believed, well, except for probably Judas, because Judas had already done it. But the rest of them, like, this is not possible for me, right? And then as the, as the argument progresses onward, it goes from there to, and I don't know how this happened. How do you start, how do you, how do you start saying, oh, I couldn't possibly betray Jesus to then all of a sudden, I'm the greatest among the disciples, right? And that's so a, a, a dispute also arose among them at the same time as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, right? So I don't know how this goes. If Peter said, well, hey, I couldn't betray him because I'm going to be I'm going to be the prime minister of the disciples, right? I'm going to be I'm going to be Jesus right hand man. And uh, J- James and John were going, no, 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 we're going to be the, the greatest. And so they, they have this this argument uh, and it brings out another part of how we see ourselves. We tend to overestimate our greatness, right? We tend to overestimate our potential and what we are going to become and what we can do and what we, what we have done, right? And that's what they do. Um, now, some of us may lean on the scale one way or the other, right? Some of us may lean more to the side of, of uh, emphasizing our weakness. Others may emphasize our strength. And some people will say, well, what about those people who... Um, you know, her just have very low self-esteem, right? And it seems like this is kind of a common thing for Christians. Oftentimes Christians are quite good at beating themselves up, at feeling that we are worthless and no good, right? Um, do those people not fall into this category? Well, even there, the person who has a terrible self-esteem, who's always putting themselves down, putting themselves down, uh, who's always degrading themselves, um, the point is they're struggling with their self-image because it's not okay to be, to be worthless, right? See, the person who's worthless and is okay with it has no problem, right? It's the person who has no self-esteem and they're not okay with that, right? I, I, I don't want to be worthless. I need my life to count for something. I need my life to, and that's why it's a struggle, right? That's why we agonize with the pain of that. And the reality is uh, God created us with a, with a need for significance. Right? We need this sense that our life counts, that we have meaning and purpose. Um, 
And even Jesus confirms it when he says of, of Judas, you know, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Right? He is a worthless creature, Jesus, Jesus says. Woe to him, right? the things that will come on him. And Jesus is not here saying that Judas was somehow out of reach of God's grace, but Jesus knew that that was not the path Judas, Judas would take. Um, that he uh, would, would walk away and walk away permanently from Jesus. So we need to believe uh, that our life has worth and, and value. So how do we do that? And how does that really affect our everyday life? Well, I think, like the disciples, we tend to determine our purpose, our worth, our value, our identity based on two major things. The first is our performance, what we can do, and how well we can do it. Um, that was what the disciples were arguing about here, that they were incapable of doing the terrible things that Jesus said were about to happen, and that they certainly were worthy of doing the greatest things that Jesus had aspired for them. Um, um, so so they, they, they were evaluating their life based on their goodness, their effort, what they could accomplish for, for Jesus, how they could be great in the kingdom. Uh, the second thing that forms our identity is not only what we do, but the opinions of others, right? How other people evaluate what we do, how they, um, how they see us, right? So I love how it says this in verse 24. It says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, Right? They were really arguing for who actually was the greatest, but rather who should be held in that position in the opinion of everybody, right? right? Who, who would be regarded? Uh, they, they saw that greatness in their thinking comes by the regard and the opinions of others. And isn't it true that this is how it works in our life? Honestly, uh, is anybody here unaffected or uncaring when you are praised, right? When you are complimented, when you are affirmed for doing well, does that just not phase you, right? It phases me, right? It makes me feel happy, honestly. It encourages me. Uh, likewise, if somebody criticizes you or tells you you are a failure or says you're doing a horrible job, who's unfazed by that, right? Who, who just blows that off as nothing? Well, for me, the... the that makes me think it hurts sometimes. It, it's disappointing. I feel less worthy and less significant. And you can look at it in lots of contexts. In the sports context, right? If you if your team if you win, how do you feel? Oh, it's such a bummer. We won. No, you celebrate. People jump and they scream and they get crazy because they won, right? And I love how this. This is how powerful this is. You can be like really overweight incredibly out of shape and, uh, and the worst athlete ever. And you still can experience this, experience this, right, not by actually playing, but just by cheering for somebody, right? You just cheer for your team. And when they win, you get to share in their victory, right? Yeah, you guys won because I was cheering you on, right? And we all, we all share in that victory and we feel good about it. Yeah, my team won, right? And likewise, and this was even more, it's, it's good to share in, in victory. But honestly, 
How many of you just get depressed when your team loses, right? Or get angry or just feel just bummed out, right? Like it was your fault, right? But that's how much this matters to us. Um, so if we did lose, um, we can still have some redemption if somebody at least values our effort in the game. If the coach says, you know, I know we lost, but it wasn't your fault. You played your heart out. And you think in your head, yeah, it was that other guy's fault. He's the one that blew the game, right? I did my part. And so, so yeah, we lost, but I'm redeemed because somebody valued what I did. Somebody saw my contribution. Or maybe it's in the workplace, right? Um, if you get a, promo- a promotion, or in our world, we really don't get promoted. You just get, you just get given jobs you didn't ask for, <laughs> right? You get made area director, but you didn't want area director, but you, you get made area director, a regional director, a country director or something. You get a title and a position and maybe a bigger office or a, a, a sticker on the door, right? And it makes us feel good because somebody... Somebody noticed us and, and thought we were worthy of this position. And it feels good. And likewise, if we get passed over time after time and they make somebody else the area director, and we've been here for 900 years and we're still not the director of anything, we think, man, what, you know, what's wrong with me, right? Um, it can happen this way. A supporting church uh, Writes you, you get this email. You love this email. They they they've been supporting you for years, and they write you this email that says we're no longer able to support you, uh, not because the church is going through economic problems, not because you know we're about to go into bankruptcy, which is what I'm thinking would be a legitimate reason, right? Uh, but because we don't believe what you do anymore, right? Our church now does this, and, you know, we do this, A, and you do that, B, and we don't believe in B anymore. We don't believe in that work, right? And so not only are you losing support, but it's like this slap in the face that all of a sudden what you do doesn't count, right? And it's, it's discouraging. It's, it can be devastating, right? Because all of a sudden it's like you don't matter, right? And it hurts. Um, going down the list, as a parent, you know, or... Uh, the teacher tells you your child has a problem at school and you feel like you're attacked as a parent, right? Somehow you failed as a parent. And so you counterattack. It's not our fault. It's your fault. You're the bad teacher. It's your fault, right? We get into these, just like the disciples, we get into these arguments, right? Because what's at stake is our self-worth. But Jesus has a much different way, Right? Uh, Jesus intervenes in the midst of their argument, their discussion. And, uh, and he says, you, you need to be different. Be different. And he says in verse 25, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Right? You need to be different. Uh, he says that the, the kings and governors, rulers in the world, they crave for power and glory. Right? The kings of the rulers of the world, they lord it over others. In other words, they use their power to uh, trample people so that they can be successful. Right? They use their position and their power and their influence uh, to be successful because performing well, accomplishing great things is how you get identity. 
But they do that by, by crushing and running over whoever gets in their way. Right? And that's the way the world works. That's the way uh, kings and rulers lorded over them. But not only that, he says that, that they, 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 they're called benefactors. Uh, what is a benefactor? Well, it's, it's just a title of honor. And what they would do is these rulers in, in Jesus' day, they would give themselves that title. Right? So they would rule well, they would accomplish great things, and then they would pat themselves on the shoulder by giving themselves title. Look at me, what a benefactor, what a, what a great person I am contributing to the world and society. Right? And so they would honor themselves to make themselves feel better. Um, so what's the real problem, right? And what is it here Jesus is saying is, 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 it, is at stake? Um, what, is, what is the issue? Well, some people say that what, uh, or think or read when they read this passage, get the idea that what Jesus is saying here is that the problem is kings and rulers, right? That what Jesus is saying here is that kings are bad, bad guys, rulers are bad guys, governors are bad guys, and the solution to the problem is to get rid of rulers, right? Or at least replace them with different rulers. Um, that's pretty much what is at the heart of democracy, right? Many hundreds of years ago, the world was ruled by kings. And a bunch of people thought, kings are bad people. We need to get rid of these no, this nobility, and we need to make uh, put commoners in charge, right? So we got rid of the kings as rulers, and we put commoners in charge, did that solve the problems? Right? Uh, well, you voted for him, not me. I don't know. Right? Well, the guy you voted for lost. I see. Well, uh, the problem is commoners turned out to be just as corrupt and power-hungry as nobility. That's what happened, right? Feminists said, well, the problem is men are in charge. If we got rid of men ruling the world and put women in charge, that would fix everything. But it turns out women also have a sin nature. Who knew? They just look better sinning, right? <laughs> but, but they still have a sin nature. Uh, so, so what's happening, in, especially in our day and age now, is people mistrust uh, leadership. They believe that the institutions themselves are bad, right? That the problem with the world is that we have leaders. If we would eliminate leaders the problems would go away. And that, that's crept into the church. And there's a, a lot of people who have this idea that the churches should be leaderless. That Jesus' model, that what Jesus is saying here is that, yeah, you know, kings and rulers are the problem. So the church shouldn't have rulers, shouldn't have leaders, uh, shouldn't have people in charge. We should just all show up. And in fact, especially at some of the more, uh, more organic level. You know, there's these ideas of house churches and churches that are leaderless, where people just show up and, you know, if you get rid of leaders, it'll solve all the problems. Is that really what Jesus is saying here? Um, well, I don't think so. And, and, and Jesus does not say here, do away with leaders. In fact, he doesn't even say, don't try to be great. Uh, God created us, in fact, in Genesis 1 it says, to rule, to govern, to be over his kingdom. We were created by God to lead. And we were created by God for greatness. In fact, Jesus promises the, the disciples and us in John chapter 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Imagine this. Not only does God want us to do big things, he wants us to do great things, and even greater things than what Jesus did. I don't have time to go into what that means, but the point here is that Jesus wants you to be great. And he calls and raises up people to lead and to lead well. The problem is not the position or leadership. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is using leadership and using greatness, using our power for self-serving purposes. That was his accusation against the kings and rulers of his day. And not that they were leading, but that they were using their authority in their positions to glorify themselves and serve themselves rather than serving others and giving glory to God. And so Jesus says, uh, don't be like that, right? Don't be like that. And here's, here's the warning for us. Okay, we all know that uh, we're not supposed to be overbearing, right, in our leadership, and hopefully most of us aren't. In fact, sometimes I think we make the mistake of going to the other extreme of being far too passive and weak in our leadership because we're afraid uh, of being strong leaders, right? So we kind of know that. But, but here's, here's a, another temptation that we may miss, and that, and that is this, that whether you lead great or small, you know, big organizations or you're just a leader in your home or in your small group or discipling somebody else, right, we're called to lead, um, and, and you may not do that in a way that's overbearing or controlling. But here's the risk. The risk is, is, is doing ministry for self-serving purposes. Right? Serving God for your own glory and for your own sense of worth and identity. Uh, when I first came to Thailand 13 years ago, I had been pastoring for 11 years. When I came here, I wasn't pastoring. Uh, I taught at Grace for a year. And during that year... I had this amazing revelation of how much of my identity was wrapped up in being a pastor. In other words, how much of my worth as a person was wrapped up in my role as a pastor. And while I was stripped away and I was just a normal person again, right? Not that I wasn't a, well, maybe I wasn't a normal person before, I don't know. Maybe I'm still not a normal person. But uh, the point was, I, uh, so much of who I was was wrapped up in that role, being a pastor. And I saw that, and all of a sudden, I didn't have that role, and people weren't looking to me in that, that leadership position. And all, I, all of a sudden, I felt kind of worthless. I thought, wow, you know, I, I don't think that's really healthy for me to have my sense of worth and being in my job as a pastor. And so I decided uh, I was going to shift my identity away from that, right? Uh, and even if I became a pastor again, I wasn't going to let that define who I was as a person, right? Or give me worth and value as a person, right? I need to find my worth someplace else. So where do we find that? Where do we go to find our identity and our worth? Um, <clears throat> well, Jesus tells them that, uh, that they need to uh, serve, Right? He says, don't be like them. Instead, uh, serve one another. And here's the problem. Um, 
God wants you to be great, right? Does anybody here want to be great? I mean, maybe not be like the president of your country or the president of your mission, but don't you want to do something significant with your life? Anybody up for that? Uh, Want your life to count? Well, God wants that for you, right? He wants you to be successful. And he wants you to reach a level of greatness in the area that he's gifted you. And we're all gifted in many different ways, right? So uh, whether it's teaching or preaching or leading or, or, or arts, uh, music, right, whatever, God wants you to do it well. He wants you to be great at it. He wants you to do it in a way that's significant. But here's the problem. There are huge dangers in success, right? Uh, how many of us know Christian, great Christian leaders, whether of the church or of missions or of organizations or of, you know, worship bands, who their success was their undoing, right? The, the, the better they did what they did, the more it was a temptation and they fell. They blew it, right? They either became such a horrible jerk, nobody would follow them anymore, or they fell into immorality, or they made very foolish decisions or said very foolish things. And if you, if you want examples, just look on, the, look on Facebook or the Internet. I mean, just as recently as a week or two ago, there's really famous Christians saying really stupid things, right? Because their success uh, has been their undoing. Um, and so a lot of Christians kind of react against that, and, and uh, there's this move among Christians that says, well, if success results in that kind of failure, then maybe what we should shoot for is mediocrity, right? Now, of course, people would never actually say that, but there's this attitude that says, you know, to really be a real devote, devout Christian, to be serious about God, you have to be broken and fallen and, and really stress our weakness, right? And there is some truth in that, right? Um, the problem is this, is that God called us to something greater. God did not call us to mediocrity. He didn't say, I want you to go out and bear fruit and bear mediocre fruit. <laughs> right? He says, I want you to bear much fruit and fruit that will last, will have eternal impact. Right? And I have, I have friends, I have people, I know people who have kind of built their whole life around this idea that I can never amount to much because to do so would be to be somehow ungodly. Right? I have to arrange my life so that I'm never really too very successful. Well, that's ridiculous. Right? It's ridiculous. Because uh, God, Jesus didn't tell his disciples, I hope you can go out there and really just kind of plant a mediocre church, <laughs> you know, reach the world in a half-hearted way, right? Build my kingdom in a kind of substandard degree. Right? It's not what Jesus called them to. So how do we do this? How do we be great? Uh, and yet avoid the pitfalls of greatness. Well, Jesus says, the answer is you need to be great and be a servant. Right? Be great and be a servant. Uh, and Jesus is the example of that. He says, not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Uh, Jesus gives a rather difficult illustration here about uh, reclining at table. What's this about? He says, who's greater, the person reclining or the person serving? And as they're celebrating uh, this Passover meal, we talked about this last week, 
uh, they, they would recline at the table. Instead of sitting, they would lay down on the floor and have this kind of low table and recline. And it was commanded at Passover. And it was a picture of their prosperity and freedom. That they no longer were slaves. They were now set free. And they were like royalty. And that was what it was a picture of. And Jesus says, who's greater? The, the person who reclines, who's a picture of royalty, or the slave who serves them? Okay, so trick question. Not a trick question, actually. What's the answer? Which is greater? The royalty. Yeah, the guy getting served, all right? If you don't believe this, when you go out for lunch today, just ask the question, who's greater, me, the customer, or the person taking my order, right? Um, You, the customer, because you pay the bill and they serve you, right? Um, You don't don't sit them down and go rush in the kitchen and get them lunch, right? They serve you. That's that's the picture. Uh, and Jesus is saying, that's right. That's right. Okay, it should be that way, right? It should be that great people uh, are great, and there are those who, who are servants. And, and Jesus says here in this picture, he is the one who's reclining a table. Jesus does not diminish or minimize his greatness. Jesus does not say, I'm such a loser, right? <laughs> I'm about to come to the end of my ministry, and it's been so mediocre, I say, no, I, I am Lord. I am rabbi. I am teacher. I am master. I am the son of God, the son of man who's about to die on the cross to redeem you from sin. Right? But I am among you as one who serves. Right? Not that I have no value or worth or no, pur- no purpose or my life is, is, is meaningless. He says, I, I am great. But I am using my greatness to serve you, right? The focus of my, of my greatness, the focus of my life, the focus of my abilities is to serve you. And in fact, he says, I'm about to serve you to the point of death. I'm about to go to the cross serving you, right? To lay down my life that we've just pictured in communion, serving you. And I'm about to do the greatest thing that can ever be done by paying the penalty for the sins of the world to take upon my shoulders the guilt and sin and shame of the world and the universe to redeem you. But I do that by serving. Right? By serving. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. He doesn't say, don't be great. But he says, the greater you are, the more you need to work at serving. It says, being as the youngest. You know what that means? It means being like the rookie, right? You ever been on a job where, you know, the new guy always just gets, gets the worst, right? He's always, you know, like, like you just pity the new guy, right? The rookie who just comes because he gets picked on. He gets the grungiest jobs. He says, be like that guy, right? Be the rookie, be like the slave, the servant, because that's what I did. Right? I took on myself your sin and your guilt and your death. Um, so, Jesus' point is: do your job, lead well. And, and here's the problem: you know what we really want is the perks and benefits of being in charge without the responsibilities. Right? Right? I want the big office and the title. I don't want all the headaches that go with it. Jesus says, uh, take on the responsibilities of duties of being in charge. Take on the headaches 
without seeking the benefits. Right? Well, that just seems lame. Right? Why would we do that? Right? That seems like just a bad idea. That's what Jesus commands. Right? So we do it partly because he commands, but partly because there's, uh, this is where, Jesus says, your life will have true worth and meaning and value by doing exactly that. He finishes with these words. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You stuck with me. Even through the cross, you have not abandoned me, uh, excluding Judas. He says, "You, you have stayed with me. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Jesus tells them how they can really know their true worth and how they should uh, build their identity. And he he gives, I think, three things. Okay, let me give these things real quickly in closing. How can you build your identity in a way that has true worth, and is based on the reality of who you are in Christ. First thing, build your identity in the cross. Right? Build your identity in the cross. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And the biggest trial he's about to go through is the cross. And the disciples, although lost and bewildered and confused, stayed faithful to him, right? Even through the cross, right? And, and, and in the same way, we cling to the cross, um, so what does it mean to do that? How does that shape our identity? Well, two things. First of all, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross because I am far worse than I know or will admit. Right? An identity that's shaped in the cross is an identity that owns really how horrible we are at the core of our being apart from the cross. Right? that I am capable of the worst desertion and treachery and treason against Jesus. No matter how morally good I am on the outside, I have a heart that's capable of completely forsaking and abandoning Jesus. Jesus had to die on the cross because I am far worse than I know or want to admit. But that's only half of it, right? The second truth of our identity in the cross is this, that because Jesus died on the cross, I now have a future far greater than I can imagine. Because Jesus died, I have a future. I have the potential for greatness far greater than we can imagine. So root our identity in the cross in those two great truths what he saved us from, and what he has saved us to. Secondly, we need to have an identity in serving. God calls us to greatness. He calls us to lead. And really, all of us lead something, right? Lead well, right? If you're discipling somebody, if, you're, if it's your children, if it's your students, if it's your organization, uh, as you have influence, lead well, right? But don't cast your identity as a leader, Instead, forge your identity in in this vision of being a servant. Jesus did this. Jesus forges identity as one who came to serve. And that, like Jesus, means that we sacrifice our own wants and desires for the benefit of others. 
Right? We use our gifts and our abilities. We lead. We become great to bless and benefit others. Thirdly, we need to have an identity rooted in the kingdom. Jesus says, I have assigned to you a kingdom. The word assigned is a hard word. Uh, it can mean give or donate it. It's a word that would mean uh, to, to write your last will and testament. Right? Jesus says, I give you a kingdom. And the kingdom he gives us is actually his kingdom. Uh, now, he doesn't give it to us in the sense that he no longer owns it. <laughs> he still is king. But he gives it to us as co-heirs, right? co-heirs of the kingdom. And it's not simply a kingdom that we live in. This is not just a place where we'll live in, in heaven. Rather, he gives us a kingdom to rule. And that's what he talks about. He says, you will sit on, the tw- on, on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he says that to the disciples and the apostles, the 12, fulfilled that in a unique way. But you and I are also called to reign and rule with Christ. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says this about the parable of the, of the talents. To the one who is given ten talents, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. It's a picture of our service here will be rewarded by ruling with him in heaven. And I don't know what that looks like. But we're not just residents of the kingdom. We are rulers in the kingdom who reign and rule with Christ. Why does that matter in terms of our identity and our worth? What matters in this? If we know what we already have, we, we don't have to strive for it, right? And most of the disciples' argument, right, go back to step one, they're arguing over who's the greatest, right? They're striving to get worth and identity and position and in greatness and in fame. And Jesus says to them, don't waste your time. You already have it. You're ruling in the kingdom, right? He says, you, I've given you this kingdom so that you can sit at my table in my kingdom, right? It's a table of honor, of glory, of fame, right? We already possess all that we would want. There's no possible way we could achieve a greatness greater than what he wants to give us in the kingdom, uh, we don't have to strive for something when we realize we already possess it. We are incredibly special in God's sight. Of course, we, we are to strive to, to be great, and in, in fulfilling his w- will and in serving, we do get a, a bigger greatness. But, but all that's been made possible through the cross. It looks like this. Um, we don't have to strive to what we already possess. When I was in college, I was in a touring choir, this Christian school, and we would travel around to churches and sing, right? Any of you ever do that, do touring choir? And the way it worked, uh, at night after the concert, some poor family in the church would take you home. Right? And it was actually quite fun. You get to know people, and they would get to know some young Bible college student. Well, one night, we, we sang in this church, and... They didn't have enough families or, or something. I don't know. We were the rejects. Nobody claimed us. Um, but it was okay because they said, we've, we've got this uh, couple in our church, and they own a hotel, and they're going to put five of you guys up in this, ho- four or five of you guys up in this hotel. 
Well, this is like a dream for us, you know. So they gave us the van, and we got to drive. It was a ways out of town. We got to drive to this next town where we were going to stay in a hotel. And so on the way, we stopped at some little convenience shop, and we loaded up on chips and Pepsi and Coke and ice cream because we were going to have a party in our little hotel, right? And we were so excited. Well, we get to this hotel, and it was a very fancy hotel, and they actually owned their own restaurant. And they said, hey, are you guys hungry? We would like to feed you. And they opened up, the restaurant was just closing, and they opened it up to us, and they brought out piles of steak and prime rib, right? And I mean, we thought we had a good, now listen, we're in heaven, right? And here's all these college boys just consuming large amounts of beef in Montana, right, where they kind of grow lots of beef, Montana, right? Good beef, right? And and, you know, we we thought we were, we thought we were going to have a party, we bought our bags of potato chips, right? When what we had available already was prime rib. Right? See, that, that's how our identity needs to be shaped. We're striving for potato chips when God has already given us prime rib. He's made us rulers in his kingdom. That's who we are in Christ. Right? We, don't, we don't need to strive for meaning. We don't need to worry about what people think about us. Right? We, we don't need to fulfill ourselves by convincing ourselves how good we are. What we need to do is find our identity in Christ and what we are and what we have in Him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g